The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. And I know some of you weren't able to be here last week for the first week, so welcome to the summer course, seven-week class on the five hindrances. Remember, we usually um, do small groups every other week, so that means tonight, and that means that everyone is agreeing to stay to the end, um, even if you don't feel like being in the small group. You just join the small group, you do the best you can, and I'll talk more about that when we get to the small groups, but it's part of the commitment of being in the Buddhist studies. And the thing is, the other people in your small group, they're going to understand because they're human beings too. They have a mind. They know what it's like when you're not, you want to go home to bed or you don't want to be with other people. or right? Because the whole point of the big group and the small group is uh, we're studying the mind together. And uh, if... You know, nothing should surprise anybody in this room, right? Because we're studying the mind. We've been observing the mind. And the thing is, although the content can be quite different between us, the basic patterns are very much the same. You know, And this is one of the points of these teachings on the five hindrances, is to get a deeper sense of these very familiar holes or patterns that the mind organizes itself around. A lot of today, our minds, I'm guessing, certainly speaking from my own experience, my mind, in subtle and not so subtle ways, organized itself around wanting something, wanting to make something happen, wanting to get somewhere, or not wanting, which is just another kind of wanting, right? Wanting something to go away. So, so much of our day, just in those first two hindrances of sense desire and ill will, wanting something, wanting to get rid of something, that sort of was the characteristic or the defining quality of our mind a lot of the time. Not the whole time, of course, because there were those times when the mind was just dull and heavy, the mind and body, right? Or wigged out restless and spinning, you know, with remorse or with worrying or some obsessive, restless mental quality. And that's a pair that we can learn to recognize. And doubt, this skeptical doubt, not a useful kind of questioning, but a doubt that keeps the mind on the surface and and basically keeps the mind from connecting with things as they are, the knowing mind being intimate with the way it is. It's like, I need to figure it out before I connect. So that sort of keeps the mind from resolving the doubt because we don't really resolve anything of importance by thinking about it. It always seems like we would or should, but we don't. We resolve things by continuing to live our life, continuing to connect and meet experience and show up and do the next thing. Isn't that true? Like a lot of the 
things that we thought we really had to resolve, like those of you who are in long-term relationships, like, oh, no, i got to figure out whether I should be with this person. Well, 20 years later, <laughs> like, you could still be trying to answer that question. Or you could look back and go, I guess I'm supposed to be with this person because I am with this person. some passages from the teachings of the Buddha. Remember, for those who weren't here last week, I had encouraged people during this week, and you can even be reflecting during my sharing tonight before we break into small groups, to just get a sense of these. And of course, as I mentioned, there are many ways to sort of divide up the different hindering patterns that disturb the subtleness of the mind, the ease in the mind, the clarity in the mind. <clears throat> wanting, not wanting, or wa- uh, sense desire, ill will, too little energy, too much energy, sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. <clears throat> there are different ways to do this. And here's what the Buddha says about these five hindrances. There are these five hindrances. This noble eightfold path is to be developed for the direct knowledge of these five hindrances, for the full understanding of them, for their utter destruction, for their abandoning. Remember, Nibbana or Nirvana is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, these four unwholesome roots, really the basis of these five hindrances. Another passage There are these five hindrances. A certain person is obstructed, hindered, blocked, and enveloped by these five hindrances. Remember I used the, I gave that Buddha's image of uh, the vine, that, you know, the seed of some fruit of the vine gets pooped on the branch of a big tree, drops down roots. At first it just, initially just starts to grow right there in the trunk of the tree, you know, in the tropics and then eventually drops down roots, and eventually envelops the whole tree. So there's nothing left of the original tree. It's all the vine at some point years later. And this is what we notice. Like if we feed the hindrance, whatever sort of the mind is under the spell of, it takes over the entire mind. And we see that. Ill will takes over the entire mind, greed, dullness, restlessness, doubt, we get enveloped. And so that word is there. There are these five hindrances. A certain person is obstructed, hindered, blocked, and enveloped by these five hindrances. That such a one, such a person could know, could know of, see, or realize a superhuman state, a distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones, the awakened ones. This is impossible. There are these five obstacles, hindrances, with, which overspread the heart, which re- weaken insight. That a person, without being rid of these five obstacles, hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight, without strength and weaken insight, shall know of one's own good, shall know of another's good, shall know of the good of both, 
or shall realize the excellence of knowledge and insight proper to the noble ones, which goes beyond the human condition, that cannot be. Right? So by definition, the Buddha is saying, these patterns, these activities of mind, block or hinder the mind from seeing or realizing what it can realize, the freedom that the mind can realize. And then related the continuation of this particular discourse from the Buddha, he says, the Buddha says, suppose in the case of a mountain stream winding here and there, swiftly flowing, taking all along with it, a person were to open watercourses into it from both sides. Then indeed the flow in midstream would be disturbed, swirled about and diverted. Nor would the stream wind here and there, nor flow swiftly, nor take all along with it. So it's interesting, maybe initially, because sometimes the Buddha uses the image of a flood, so maybe you were thinking of the stream as being bad, but here it's kind of nice. And the Buddha does this in several of his an analogies. The mountain stream is actually an analogy for the naturalness of human existence with wisdom, right? When there's wisdom. Just as the water flows down, takes care of its business in a sort of natural, effortless way. But if someone were to divert one's life energy, you know, obsessing about what I want to get rid of, obsessing about what I want, obsessing about my dullness, my sleepiness, obsessing about my restlessness or the doubt, and feeding those five hindrances, there wouldn't be much left to the mountain stream or to the human being. And finally, one more passage. A person should consider thus, are the five hindrances abandoned in me? If by reviewing one knows thus, the five hindrances are not abandoned in me, then what should make an effort to abandon those five hindrances? But if by reviewing one knows thus, the five hindrances are abandoned in me, then one can abide happy and glad, training day and night in wholesome states. Right? It's really important to realize, just as important to realize moments when the mind is unhindered, in balance, clear, you know, the naturalness of living our life isn't being diverted, you know, isn't the energy of doing this, doing that, choosing this, all the ways that we see how some days are totally exhausting, not physically exhausting, but spiritually, psychically exhausting, because our life energy has been diverted into these patterns that don't go anywhere, you know, wanting, not wanting. It's not about sleepiness, restlessness and sleepiness, this imbalance of energy. The hindrance is turning the dullness or the sleepiness into a problem, right? It's feeding it or feeding the restlessness. Same with the doubt. It's the mind... Uh, misperceiving the hindrance, misunderstanding the hindrance, and then thus feeding it. That becomes, you know, the problem that ends up draining the heart. And we just feel burnt or fried. You know, these words that we use sometimes, totally fried, discombobulated. 
you know, wigged out, not good for anything. A mind, and, and the opposite, you know, when we talk about samadhi, the energy that builds when the mind has some continuity of present moment awareness has put aside the hindrances, that mind is described by the Buddha as being wieldy and nimble and capable of seeing things as they are, capable of doing what the human being needs to do. And it's really impressive when our mind is that way. It sort of naturally leaps up to whatever's next. Okay, let's do this. Let's meet this. Let's connect here. Not out of greed, but just the mind is really, you know, it's like a child. When you watch a child or a a young animal, sort of just the wholeheartedness, the enthusiasm, it isn't like lamenting life. And then how much of the day or days do we sort of desire not to be doing what we're doing, which is in a when we're reflective, that's the height of irony to be living our life, but not to want to be living our life, which is what we do a lot of the time. Always, you know, not wanting to be doing what we're doing, always not wanting to be who we are. Of course, all of these hindrances arise, all of the problems of human existence, I've mentioned this, I talked about this last week, really arise from a misunderstanding of experience, of worldly experience. And the, the short, and I mentioned this last week, so just as a review for those who weren't here, right? the short is that The mind is seeking sustenance, seeking nourishment from sense experience. And this is this fundamental misunderstanding about why life is here or why experience is here. The basic sense of it, you know, our normal, ordinary, and deluded sense is my life is here, my series of experiences are here to provide me with satisfaction. So my job is to navigate my life to make things happen so my experience is in fact satisfying, nourishing me in a way, right? Like, I mean, to be a little provocative, the world is our playground here to make us happy. And this basically goes unquestioned. I mean, it doesn't mean it does make us happy. It generally doesn't make us happy, but we generally have somebody to blame for the fact that it's not making us happy. Sometimes we blame ourselves. Often we blame somebody else for screwing up our playground so that I'm not able, I'm not being made happy by my experience. We blame the weather. We blame God. We blame our partners. We blame our friends. We blame those with power. And if only, right, this is the promise that's never kept, if only the government officials got their act together, or if only my friends, my partner, myself got my act together, 
then I'd be able to be nourished and I, by life, by my experience, and I'd be satisfied. And born out of that then are all of the different ways the mind suffers, basically. And you know, in the Buddha, he, he's very skilled at talking about the different expressions of joy, but he's just as skilled at mapping out all of these ways, all of the reverberations of this basic misunderstanding of life. So there's, the, there's tanha, which is usually translated as craving. It actually <coughs> is related to the word, or actually is the word thirst in Pali, thirsting. Right? So craving for sense experience, craving to become somebody, craving to get out of something, to be done with something. So there's craving, and then when we act on craving, it's upadana, which we usually translate as clinging or grasping or being attached, being identified. So it's the maturing of craving into like, I'm doing something about my craving. Right? And then like I've gone and I've gotten the candy bar, I've got the chocolate, now it's mine, and now I'm grasping it. So you know, normally we put our chocolate in a certain drawer, or sweets in a certain drawer at the house. But sometimes it feels more appropriate to put it somewhere else. (laughs) Right? So it's like, because it's mine, I'm going to have that, as opposed to it's ours. And it's just interesting. And I'm so, it's so interesting, like, or if I bring something to work, and then it's like, uh, I mean, generally I do hide it, you know. <laughs> but then generally I notice that I've hidden it, and I notice the grasping, right? And I notice how difficult it is then to share it. Where would this end? <laughs> and that's the thought that comes to mind around. And so that's the grasping. So it's one thing to want it, but once we've, taken some action, then there's a whole identity, right? It's my chocolate or my thing. You need to treat it a certain way because it's mine. I worked hard to get it. So this is this, the deepening of that entangling, right? The, in, the enveloping and circling vines or the diverting of our life energy. You know, all this ownership, all this fear we have, See how it just sucks us dry. And then people, you know, they want to break away. So they go, oh, I just need to get out of here. I'll go on a backpacking trip. You know, and then the same thing gets recreated about, like, where should I go? And you start looking at the maps and talking to people. You want to go to the best place with the best views, right? And you need this, the right equipment. And, you know, and it gets just the same as, like, real life. It's just because you can take it or, you know, the Buddhist equivalent is like going on a Buddhist retreat or even ordaining as a Buddhist monk or a nun. But that we take that same kind of grasping, craving, grasping tendency. And then the Buddha maps out how these sort of expand. Like the next, another term is asawa. Maybe you've heard that. Term sometimes translated as cankers, taints, 
corruptions, floods, outflows, right? This is how our heart, our mind, like flows out, like that same metaphor that we heard earlier. Sense desire is a canker, is an outflow, desiring external, yeah, I'm sorry, eternal existence, right? Just like not wanting things to end. Wrong views is an outflow. Ignorance, misunderstanding is an outflow. And often in the way the Buddha taught, he would equate the destruction of the cankers, the, de- the ending of the outflows, as synonymous with Nibbana or awakening. And then another more expansive term the Buddha uses, kalesa, or usually translated as defilements or torments of the mind, unwholesome qualities of the mind, including the first three hindrances. Well, actually, all the hindrances are here. Greed, hate, delusion. These are the three unwholesome roots. Buddha says there's no burning like greed. There's no grip like hate. No net like delusion. So these are the first three defilements. Then there's conceit. Remember, and conceit isn't like we normally think of conceited, someone's full of themselves. But any conceit, like even um, like in later stages, when someone has deep insight, they still might identify with freedom or just identify with the purity of consciousness, the purity of awareness. I'm aware, but I'm not caught. Right? That's conceit. Just the sense of identification, even with the purity or the goodness of your heart, is conceit. Speculative views, or any fixed views really, is a torment of the mind. Skeptical doubt, one of the hindrances. Mental torpor, right? sleepiness, one of the hindrances. Restlessness, one of the hindrances. And then the last two of the ten defilements, the ten torments of the mind are um, shamelessness, sometimes it's translated at as or lack of remorse. Right? Thinking that it doesn't matter what I just did. Right? So I screwed up. And sort of being dismissive of like what it feels like to have done what I've just done. Not honoring the ache when we do something unskillful, not honoring the ache that's there, but, but somehow dismiss, like, I shouldn't feel bad. Justifying it, you know, like, why am I feeling so bad? I shouldn't feel bad. That person deserved that. As opposed to actually trusting what we feel. No, no, there's a feeling here. It feels like this. Whether I want it or think it should be there or not, there is a shucky feeling. This is information. You know, the emotions we feel are in some ways a much more sophisticated source of information than the thoughts we think. Right? There's sort of two ways we navigate our world. We feel something, and that's telling us something, but just not in words. In a way, we think of it as being more primitive, but it's also more sophisticated, too, emotions are. Right? Like they say, a picture is the same as a thousand words. It's the same, similar kind of sense, like having an emotional feeling is very informative. Like you 
you walk into a room and you get a funny feeling. Imagine if you like had to talk yourself, explain that funny feeling you have when you walk in the room. You know, it'd be like 10 minutes and by then the bad people in the room would have done whatever they're going to do. But you walk in the room, you have a bad feeling and if you're sensitive in that moment, if you're not distracted, you know, you listen to that funny feeling and you say, you know, I, don't, I think I'm going to leave. You may not have a reason like uh, with language why you left the room or why you decided to get married to that person, <laughs> right? But there was a feeling there. So that's, uh, sometimes you hear me or other teachers mention hiri otapa, right? So this is the opposite. So it's ahiri, right? This lack of regret, absence of regret. And then the otapa, you know, aotapa, so the opposite of wholesome fear, wholesome concern is, not having any concern. You know, like sometimes teenagers, <laughs> that's a stereotype, right? They don't have appropriate fear, you know, of things that they should be appropriately afraid of. You know, or maybe even you today. You, sometimes we do things that when our mind <coughs> is more balanced, more clear, like, what was I thinking? You know, what was I thinking when I did that? So, there are some things we should be afraid of. Like when I'm in certain situations with certain people where I know because of maybe power imbalance or all kinds of other factors at play, there's a, an appropriate concern like, be careful. It would be easy to say something or do something that could cause harm. So be careful. That's not being tight. That's being appropriately concerned, right? Because when we're walking along a ledge, you know, and the wind's blowing, and there's ice on the stone, it's appropriate to be concerned because it would be easy for something to happen. So these are the 10 defilements, the 10, and you don't need to memorize these. I'm just sort of giving you a sense of how. Um, specific and comprehensive the Buddha's map of the mind. And in the same way, we would want, you know, why wouldn't we want to map out? Why wouldn't we want to be this fluent with these things that hinder the mind, that burden the mind? The thought I had was like, can you imagine if you had bed bugs in your bed? how vigilant you would be. You'd immediately go to Google, you'd search, you know, you'd learn, you'd read a lot, way before you'd even walk into the bedroom, you know. And then you'd get your suit, whatever, what do they call those full body? Hazvac? Hazmat? Hazmat suit, you know, and with all your, you know, probably poisons or whatever. But the point is, these are our bed bugs. These are much more dangerous than bed bugs. Bed, bed bugs give you a wealth, right? But the hindrances and the other um, unwholesome patterns, they're here. They're in a more intimate place than our bed, right? They're embedded in the conditioning of our mind and heart, right here. 
All they need are certain triggers and ill will will arise. Dullness will arise, greed will arise, doubt will arise, conceit will arise, maybe already to some degree active in the mind, these factors, right? And they are harming the people we care most about and harming ourselves all the time. They are sapping our life energy away. They are enveloping us, imprisoning us. I think I mentioned maybe, I don't know if I did, but you know what the hindrances, the Buddha has images for each one. So sense desire is like being in debt. Some of you know that feeling of being in debt. Ill will is like being sick. Sleepiness is being in prison. Restlessness he equates to being enslaved. And doubt he equates to being in a dangerous place. Now, coming out of debt, coming out of an illness, coming, being freed from prison, being freed from being enslaved, coming out of danger, right? These are we can actually sense this as we go in and out of these states of being hindered. Oh, yeah, it was like I was caught up in ill will for a couple hours today, and it was like a sickness. Yeah, and now it is so nice. Like it feels so nice when we start to get healthy again. You can notice that. So these images are very useful. It's actually worth memorizing. I'll send it out in the email, this list, this sort of cheat sheet where you can look at this. The Buddha also uses like a mountain pool and um, having a lot of greed is like putting a, a color, a dye in the pool and it obscures, you can't see into the pool. And ill will is like boiling water. You know, you can't, it loses its transparency. And sleepiness is filled with algae when you're dull, when the mind is heavy. In restlessness, it's whipped up by the wind. In doubt, it's muddy. Right? And so it's like useful images to help us get a sense, a more visceral sense of these visiting obscurations. And it's actually enlivening to begin to name them, name them notice them, because they're visiting obscurations. They're visiting torments. They're visiting hindrances. They come and go. What is the mind free of the hindrances? Right? That is much more in the direction of the ordinary natural mind, a mind unhindered, naturally luminous, naturally at ease. That's why the instruction you can use like to be really curious, interested, and confident in the possibility of the mind and body being at ease. It's so much easier to get to know the hindrances from the place of at least intuiting the ease of the body and mind, and then you notice what's in the way. But if you have no confidence, no intuition, no sense of the space, the clarity, the ease, the stability of the mind, then it's really going to be hard to get a sense of the hindrances. This is often, it's like, often the, is the case. It's a chicken and egg thing where, like, 
how can I get to know the hindrances until the mind is free of the hindrances? But, you know, our mind is naturally cycling through times of being much more hindered, much more entangled, and times where it's less entangled, more clear, more stable. So, to really get interested in the absence of the entanglements, the relative stability, the relative clarity, the relative energy, brightness of the mind, and then to notice what gets in the way of that, what hinders that. So if you did your homework this week, you've, you've gained some sense of what are the predominant hindrances in your, mi- in your mind. And be nice in our small groups tonight to share a little bit about what you see. You know, when you observe your mind, what are the common patterns? I mean, it's not a, it's usual that some seem, whether they actually are the dominant hindrance or it's the one you're more capable of recognizing, that's for you to, dis- to discover. But just to start to share that territory of what is it that's arising regularly in your mind that gets in the way of ease, clarity, balance, and just being a more skillful, wise, and compassionate human being. What's in the way of you being a Buddha? How do you know you're not a Buddha? Right? How do you know you're not already fully balanced, fully at ease, fully skillful? What are you seeing that convinces you you're not there yet? So that's what we're reporting in the small groups tonight. You can take a few moments right now and just sort of reflect. I mean, even as I share a few more things about the small groups, you might react with a hindrance. And that may give you a a clue, you know, like when is it going to be done? Oh, aversion, right? That's ill will. Oh, that's pretty common, (laughs) right? And once you kind of catch one of the hindrances, it's like, you start to, you, you immediately have a sense of its place in all the other moments during the day. Right? It's like a wormhole to the, how that pattern has been playing itself out for a long time. This is the idea, to see the roots, to, have, to start to have some real respect. These forces are impersonal, but they're real. Impersonal, but real. And they really deserve respect. And like anything in nature, they've been wound up. And because they've been set in motion, they can unwind, they can be abandoned, they can be weakened. Right? Anything that exists in nature has causes. If it has causes, those supporting causes can be removed. And the thing will implode, it will fall away. Because everything's dependent on causes including the negative or not-so-helpful patterns in our mind. So for those of you who are brand new to the Buddhist studies, as I mentioned, every other week we have small groups. The idea is with the three of you to sit pretty close so you don't have to use a loud voice so that we're not disturbing the other groups that are sitting near us. Even if you think you know everybody or you think everyone should know everybody, say your name. That's why we often... Remind people to wear name tags, especially on the weeks we have the small groups. Because even though you're going to share your name at the beginning of your small group, people like me forget after about 15 seconds. And then it's so embarrassing at the end when you're doing an open discussion not to remember the person's name, but just keep asking each other. It's, it's important not to be shy 
about that. Decide the order. Everybody gets three minutes. When it's your turn, you have three minutes, even if you don't have three minutes to say. So really, everyone in the small group, be okay with silence. Really relax when the person stops talking. It's like, oh my God, they don't have anything more to say. No. Just the person whose time it is, just keep reflecting. You might, in a few seconds, have more to say, or you might not. Either way, it's okay. And everybody else in the group, the other two people in the group, just be there in the moment, relaxed in the experience of the body and reflecting on what the person has said thus far in your own experience and how it relates, right? Just stay in the moment together in a compassionate, loving, engaged way. And then when your three minutes is up, everyone can thank, either use a uh, the bring your hands together like this, Anjali, or just you know thank the person out loud if you want. But during their sharing, you don't need to nod. You don't even need to make eye contact. You're just creating a safe space for them to be real and share what they have to share. So you can look down or you can look at them, but you don't have to like actively support them with your eyes or with your nodding. It can be a little bit more um, subdued. And then, of course, the next person, then the third person, and usually there's about five minutes at the end just for open discussion. That's the time if you want to ask the person a clarifying question, didn't quite get what they were talking about, or bring in something that relates to what they said. But when you share, don't comment on somebody else's sharing. Just share from your own, directly from your own practice. Okay? And then, of course, what we share in these small groups is confidential to the small groups. It doesn't get, you know, shared outside of that. Or if you do, you know, you disguise it in a way that you know, it has nothing to do with the person in your group. The last thing is just to remember, and this may be um, new to some of you, but we've been uh, learning here at Common Ground, all of us leaders and teachers, that uh, a lot of folks in our wider community don't feel comfortable with the binary pronouns he and she, he and uh, he and he him and she and her. And so it's nice in these small groups just to do a quick pronoun check. Let the people know what your preferred pronoun is. Some people might prefer they and them or whatever. Just state that for the group. That's just a nice ritual we're using more and more, especially when during the open sit, when we naturally refer to somebody as he or him, but we don't really know what their preferred pronouns are and uh, yeah it's just it's important and like in big groups now when I lead retreats I try even though I might think for my conditioning oh that's a woman so I'm going to use she and her or that's a man I'm going to use he and him the fact remains I don't know I don't even know what their sex is by what they look like and I certainly don't know with how they're using gender how they're relating to gender right so this is just a way of being respectful to people in our community that uh, don't feel comfortable with the traditional binary pronouns. Okay, so let's count off so we know our small groups. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.